When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to 1956, Section 2, Episode 1, or Part 2.1, as I'm calling it in the feed. I hope you guys are doing well. I'm very excited to bring this to you, because we're looking at the Suez Crisis at long last. This here is the first episode of the second phase of our series. And as such, it's available to all listeners alongside the next episode, which will be available right alongside this, or at least it should be, unless something went catastrophically wrong. But yes, everything should be available at the same time. I hope you guys enjoyed joining us here momentarily, and that this snapshot of 1956 
we'll give you a window into what we're doing in this very long-awaited, fascinating, and very in-depth series. We've already finished phase one, which looked at the Soviet Union leaving Stalin in the rearview mirror and seeing what would happen next, which led to revolution in Hungary and Poland, as we saw. But now we're looking at a more Western angle. The Suez Crisis is fascinating, guys. And perhaps if you think this sounds like it's up your street, you will consider parting with your $5 a month and accessing all of it. In 20 easy steps, we will be looking at the Suez Crisis. More than 10 hours of content will be being released over the next year, guys. And yeah, I'm really happy with how it went, and it's quite unlike anything else I've ever done before. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash windiplomacyfails to find out more about it, and also access all the stuff that we have to come, and the stuff that is already there too. For everyone else, if you are not in fact going to apply on Patreon and spend that $5, I hope you enjoy these two episodes anyway. I realize there's an awful lot going on in our feet at the moment between the 30 Years War. Uh, jeepers, the 30 Years War is just one aspect of it. But there's also the Korean War. There's advertisements for Wondery. There's 1956 promos. And of course, in the near future, in November, we'll be looking at the Versailles Anniversary Project. And good grief, could we be doing anything more with our podcasting space? But that's the way we like We like to be busy and we like to keep on doing as much history as possible. This way you guys can pick and choose your favourite stuff. And you have been letting me know that this... Well, while some of you have been letting me know that you're kind of overwhelmed, other people have been letting me know that they enjoy the wide variety of When Diplomacy Fails content. And of course, I enjoy variety myself. It is the spice of life, as they say. So, yes, the spice to your podcasting life is what I'm here to bring. The Suez Crisis has always been our end destination. And it is our end destination in Phase 2, of course. But to get there, we have to set stuff up. The British, the French, Israelis, the Egyptians, and even the Suez Canal itself, that geographical feature, that well, that man-made feature that was able to be put in there because of geography. Look at me being all scientific and everything else. Thank God history is my profession and not engineering or science. Anyway, yes, it'll all be explained in the coming episodes. And this overview will give you a great window into the strange world that the 1950s was. This is all history that's surprisingly recent. People my age could have parents who were born or grew up during this tumultuous time, and they may be fortunate to also grandparents who remember seeing details of these events on the news or reading about them in the papers. While these events are quite recent, just over 60 years old, they're also part of our history, and they do explain how and why the West, and more specifically Europe, developed as it did. Messy debates and bitter struggles characterised the process as states which were once world powers gradually came to terms with their new status. And their new positions, not as the superpower machines they had once been, but merely as one cog in this machine. To some, this acceptance process took longer than it did, but for others, they adapted reasonably well. In this episode, we'll open with one such example. The French struggle in Algeria may seem unrelated to the Suez Crisis, and a few shades removed from our actual end goal, but in actual fact, Algeria tells a story, and much as the experience of Vietnam does, of a French power in steep decline, and as a people gloomily looking on. Through successive French governments, different solutions were imagined, and while the Algerian question would not be properly solved until the early 1960s, the worsening of that situation in the mid-1950s 
tells us a great deal about the kind of French mindset which was prevalent at the time, and which led its governments to determine in the end that cooperation and intervention alongside Britain and Israel in Egypt was wholly necessary. To understand why these powers acted as they did, we need first to understand what they were going through, and in this episode we attempt to do just that by placing you in that bloody, regrettable period of French history when its government tried with all its might to cling on to the past. Brace yourselves then, as I take you, not to 1956, but to 1954. Algerian people, reflect on your humiliating, colonised condition. Under colonialism, justice, democracy and equality are nothing but a snare and a delusion. Side by side with our brothers to the east and to the west, who are dying that their fatherland may live, we call on you to reconquer your freedom at the price of your blood. Organise yourselves to give aid, comfort and protection to the forces of liberation. To take no interest in the struggle is a crime. To oppose it is treason. Long live the army of liberation. Long live independent Algeria. This rousing statement was part of a handbill that was typical of the kinds of memorabilia which the Algerian National Liberation Front left behind during their sporadic resistance to French colonial rule. This specific handbill was hastily scrawled and pinned to a door on the 1st of November 1954. What had led to such a state of affairs, and why were the French even in Algeria at all? In actual fact, the history of Algeria and its relationship to France is quite interesting because it's not typical of the other French colonies which had existed around the world. The French were there and had been in Algeria in large numbers. One million white European settlers, given the mysterious name Pierre Noir, faced off against 9 million Muslim Algerian natives. The struggle was plainly uneven in terms of numbers, but this was a state of affairs which had long since characterised the Franco-Algerian relationship ever since the French first annexed the region into their empire in 1834, and then into the state of France itself in 1848. The French constitution in that revolutionary year actually established Algeria as an integral part of France. A map of the region, of course, shows Algeria directly to the south of France, with only the Mediterranean Sea standing between the French and their favourite African colony. Algeria was split up into three administrative regions, and the French acted as though they were governing any other province of France, even while they granted no such rights to the natives that lived there. Throughout this period, the relationship was violent. The French unseated the old rulers of the country through acts of scorched earth, reprisals, and, yeah, mass rape as a policy. It wasn't a very good time. All the while, Algeria was kept in check largely because its society remained primarily tribal, and nationalism, as we would understand it, hadn't properly bloomed as it had in Europe. In addition, the French, of course, were possessing superior technology and organisational expertise which they had applied to other aspects of Africa and which they would apply to new territories conquered in the decades to come, which made up part of their empire. The developing relationship with Algeria was a testament both to how important the French believed Algeria to be to their security and identity and to the developing theories of the rights of man in far-flung places. The French civilising mission was just as bloody, just as contested on the ground, 
as France's European counterparts, but Algeria sticks out because of its curious status throughout the years. Following the declaration of Napoleon's Second Empire in the early 1850s, Algeria was classified under the Indigenous Code of 1865 as a territory of France. This idea was reinforced by the offering of citizenship to Algerian Muslims, but few took this offer up. Discrimination was rife, of course, but the French did not cease to view Algeria as their backyard, just because so few Algerians wished to get along. By 1881, Algeria's status was reinforced in the midst of the scramble for Africa, and Algeria was distinguished by its supposedly strong history of linkage to France. In the 50 years since they had arrived, the French hadn't treated Algerians on the ground any differently to their other colonial subjects, yet the lip service continued to be paid, and, importantly for our story, French settlers were encouraged to travel from the home country to Algeria and spread the message of civilization themselves. A great number of them, one million by our timeline, would settle in Algiers, the capital of the colony and its surrounding suburbs. Algerian natives had no genuine rights or protections, and various decrees essentially removed most of their entitlements. A white French settler could take an Algerian's property or goods at greatly reduced prices, and any kind of justice system for Algerian grievances was practically absent. It should be said that not all French settlers took it upon themselves to be ugly to their new Algerian neighbours, but in the absence of state controls and the abundance of cheap, often free labour, the French gained a great deal. Algeria was squeezed and the Algerian people themselves enjoyed few of the benefits of the relationship. You're noticing a pattern here, of course. Only at the end of the Second World War, after the French had levied the Algerian soldier into two world wars, did this relationship change. As the Allies thundered through Vichy France and its colonial territory, an ordinance was issued in March 1944 to encourage the colonials to support the Allies. French citizenship and all of its inherent rights and entitlements were to be granted to all inhabitants of that curious French African limb in Algeria. This was confirmed in the 1946 constitution, which established the Fourth French Republic. Here it was specified that French Algerians would not have to renounce their Islamic faith to become a French citizen, a not insignificant ruling for the time. After World War II was in the rearview mirror, the French administration of Algeria resumed as though nothing had changed. Much as was the case in Indochina, with similarly disastrous consequences, the French returned to their old posts and just tried to turn back the clock. The Republic, it was assumed, would still retain its empire as it had done since the 1870s, and as it did after the First World War. This time, though, the clock could not be wound backwards. On the 1st of November 1954, after campaigns for improved conditions and equality of rights had been repeatedly ignored, the Algerian Liberation Front rose up in a revolt. We opened the episode with the scene of a handbill being pinned to a villager's door, as the revolution was announced. This scene was repeated across the country, and over the next 16 months, the situation in Algeria got more and more out of control. In the background, the communist parties in both France and Algeria weighed in on the conflict, with both denouncing the violence as an example of the French imperialist capitalist disease, which had also led to much bloodletting and military humiliation in Indochina. In May 1954, after all, only a few months before, Dien Bien Phu had shattered for good any notions of French imperial supremacy in Vietnam, and the region soon attracted more and more American attention 
as the French were forced to focus on matters closer to home. Here, said the communists, was an example of French imperialism once more causing unnecessary suffering. Not so, said many French citizens both within Algeria and without. Algeria was a department of France, and the conflict stemmed from the tensions between Christian and Muslim, between natives and Pied Noir. This tricky definition of the conflict was also used when the conflict made its way to the United Nations, and the French government defended its actions as though it was facing up to a civil war. This was not another Indochina, Paris seemed to insist. It was an internal issue for the French people to solve. Algeria, in the words of one historian, was the jewel of France's empire, and even while it was not presented as an imperial possession, it was still treated as such on the ground. Algeria was also France's most important market, largely because of the disproportionate advantages and concessions which the French home government enjoyed when dealing with the Algerian resources, markets and citizenry. Strategically, of course, Algeria provided France with an invaluable link to the Mediterranean and to North Africa. Communications between the two regions was not plagued by the same difficulties as, say, Britain's Kenyan possessions. The close proximity of the Algerian metropole and France proper also provided great opportunities to scores of French citizens for adventure and vacation. The historian Christopher Harrison wrote that There was scarcely a single major French writer or painter who had not at some time gone to seek inspiration in the Algerian towns, countryside and people. Algerians were attracted in increasing numbers to metropolitan France, doing manual jobs scorned by the French people. Whether the argument appeared farcical or not then, a great deal of French citizens believed in the importance and the inseparable nature of Algeria to France. Little wonder that a French newspaper headline of the time read that To lose Algeria is to lose France. Yet the French were in danger of losing Algeria once the revolt broke out. The native Algerians outnumbered the Pied Noir by 10 to 1 after all, and while they could not mobilise themselves as effectively, this disparity in numbers necessitated a vast expenditure in the French budget on materials and efforts to stamp out the insurrection. Periods of comparative quiet would of course follow in this near 10-year struggle, as conflict was relegated at times just to the countryside. Yet violence and bloodshed was never far away, and the French people were consistently reminded of the Algerian problem, Whenever a bomb went off in the south of France, or whenever Algerian rebels attempted to storm key buildings in Algiers. As Algeria became more problematic, the French government was faced with greater challenges from its other troubled colonies in North Africa. Both Tunisia and Morocco would be released from French custody by 1956, but in the initial years of the Algerian struggle, the provision of aid by the two colonies to the Algerians threatened to transform the conflict into a racially charged war of African versus Frenchmen. From 1956 this support only increased, and the two colonies issued passports to the Algerian rebels to enable them to travel abroad and make necessary arrangements for the purchase of arms. They served as channels for the supply of arms to the rebels as well, and they permitted arms depots and military bases to be established on their territory. They did not undertake to stop the rebels from carrying out raids into Algeria from bases on their territory either. They both recognised the provisional government of the Algerian Republic as soon as it was formed, 
and President Habib Bourguiba of Tunisia, who would remain president of Tunisia for over 30 years before retiring in 1987, even went so far as saying that Tunisia would give the Algerian rebels every assistance short of declaring war on France. So clearly, the odds were stacked against France, if only because they were facing off against the bulk of their former and current African colonies at the same time. Tasked with solving these problems was the new French Premier Guy Mallet, who had been elected to that troubled office on the 1st of February 1956. The office of the President of the Council of Ministers, which in French political lingo actually meant Prime Minister, seemed like something of a poisoned chalice by the time Guy Mallet got his hands on it. Between 1954 and 58, a succession of no less than 10 different French statesmen served as Prime Minister of France before Charles de Gaulle put everyone out of their misery and rolled up his sleeves. Was thus one among many to hold the office, and the turmoil facing France in the 1950s stuck out as the primary reason why French politics remained so unstable after the Second World War even while the likes of Britain and even West Germany managed to get a handle on things. Algeria was the latest in a long line of crises. Crises in both identity, confidence and security had rocked France to its core by the time Guy Mallet took over, but he was hopeful that the terrible state of affairs in Algeria could be solved. All it would take was some understanding and a bit of give and take on both sides. On the 6th of February 1956, less than a week after assuming office, Mollet made the trip to Algiers in a bid to ease the problems of the most pressing French trouble spot of the day. Algeria had become something of an open wound in the previous months, and a great reason for this was due to the reactions and shortcomings of the governor of Algeria. A liberal by the name of Jacques Soustel. Soustel had been appointed to Algeria in January 1955 with great plans for modernising the Franco-Algerian relationship, but his limited successes had been marred by the reluctance of Paris to actually spend any money. Another hurdle was that Soustel happened to take up his post at a time of increasing bitterness and bloodiness in the Algerian insurgency, which saw over 100 people killed in one attack, including women and children, in the town of Skikta. This led to reprisals, inevitably, and the situation quickly escaped Sustel's control despite his best intentions. Guy Mallet's decision to relieve Sustel and replace him with a veteran of the Second World War was made shortly after his arrival in Algiers, but it was far from popular with the French settlers in that city. Mallet was effectively chased out of the city, and he felt forced into letting up, reappointing Sustel as the Pied Noir chanted slogans calling for his head. Guy Mallet's initially optimistic outlook was replaced by the end of the ordeal with an ashen-faced, stunned expression. A few days later he would reflect that, I should not have given in. But by then it was too late. The intense feelings of the French settlers had won out. Compromise was evidently impossible in the face of such vehement hatred. Guy Mallet was the French statesman representing France to the world during the Suez Crisis. But throughout the tenure of that event, French eyes and above all, French men, money and materials were being spent in enormous numbers in Algeria. Malay, having once harboured hopes of compromise, now felt he had little choice. From February 1956 until his government collapsed in June 1957, 
Guy Mollet adopted a new line of thinking towards the war in Algeria and believed that until the insurgency was defeated, proper meaningful negotiations could never take place. Guy Mollet became increasingly occupied with the Algerian question, yet he remained short of answers to these questions. Controversy emerged when it was learned that Guy Mollet's government had approved of various torture methods to wrest information out of the insurgents. The consistent use of torture by the French brings up the question, why did the French behave in this way? As well as the further question, how was such a policy justified by those that had led French forces in the event? The historians Svetan Todorov and Arthur Denner, in their article on the subject of torture in this conflict, answered the question in the following way, saying, The standard answer to this question, formulated many years ago by military leaders who decided that they would no longer try to conceal what had been done, is that torture was the only way to win the war. The Algerian war was not a traditional war, they explained. The enemy did not engage them on a mutually recognised battlefield agreed to beforehand. This was a civil war, and the army did not know who its enemy was. The French were being ambushed and violently attacked, but by whom, and who was giving aid and comfort to these invisible adversaries? The army needed to know, and for this they needed information. If no one was offering it voluntarily, it had to be coerced, through torture, if it came down to that. In a conflict like that which had developed in Algeria, where indiscriminate bombings were a regular occurrence, the argument which was put forward in favour of the use of torture sounds like something out of an episode of 24, where Jack Bauer has only a few hours to find and disarm a series of bombs before they all go off and kill hundreds, maybe thousands of people. In circumstances like these, why would Jack Bauer, or the French army for that matter, pause to consider the rights of a terrorist who knows exactly where these bombs are? Zvetan Todorov and Arthur Denner argue quite reasonably that this scenario rarely if ever plays out because bombers such as those that operated during the insurgency in Algeria were seldom if ever actually caught. Above all though, aside from the point that the Jack Bauer strategy is very rarely possible to use, the argument that torture is the only way for France to win the Algerian war is proved manifestly false because the French did not win. This is because, as anyone who has studied any kind of civil or colonial conflict knows, harsh reprisals do not guarantee victory. They actually ensure eventual defeat by sowing resentment and hatred, and providing the rebels with a platform to appeal to their countrymen and find more recruits to their cause. As we also know, colonial wars and civil conflicts aren't just about military victories, they're also about winning hearts and minds, and you can hardly do that when you're torturing the hearts and minds of these people to death. Resorting to torture made the French government appear barbaric, and it caused immense international embarrassment for Guy Mollet's government when the truth was learned of. To those that took part in the torture, though, Mollet's unpopularity was less of a concern to them than the job they had to do, or the cruelty inflicted on their mates, or even in some cases, the chance to avenge the defeat of French arms in Indochina. The Algerian insurgents had been dehumanised, the French conscript cut off from the outside world, and told to do his job by removing the enemy to the state, and the state included Algeria. It was all too easy for a cycle of endless violence and counter-attack to become entrenched in the conflict, and again, any scholar or enthusiast familiar with other such colonial or civil wars 
will not be surprised by this pattern. Coming as it did after the depressing Indochina experience though, the French felt the Algerian pressure still more intensely than they otherwise would have done. Holding on to Algeria was thus an integral mission for the sake of French identity, but it wasn't just Algeria that needed to be held on to. All segments of the French Empire needed to be retained if France was to have some chance of meeting either threat posed by communism in its colonial possessions or of measuring up to other superpowers like the Americans, Soviets and, so it seemed for the moment at least, the British. The Algerian episode was an important running sore for the French national psyche, but understanding how deep this wound ran in the aftermath of the heart-wrenching Second World War experience is critical. If we are to appreciate then the mindset of Guy Mollet's government when it came to the Suez Crisis. In the first place, it should be said, the French had already been given good grounds to dislike Nasser's Egypt, even before news of the Suez Canal's nationalisation had been received. Egyptian involvement in French business was a particularly sore issue for the French, and once the Suez Crisis had been concluded, the resentment felt towards Cairo would only increase. French Syria, released after 1945, would even form a union with Nasser's Egypt for a few years, after the latter's triumphant stand against the Western imperialists. Nasser's star continued to rise after 1956, to the immense detriment of the French position in North Africa. The League of Arab States had been formed in 1945 to enable independent Arab countries to help other Arab peoples achieve independence. The League subsidised the Cairo office of the Committee for the Liberation of North Africa, which itself became heavily involved in the struggles for independence in Morocco, Tunisia and, above all, Algeria. After the Algerian rebels launched their revolution, Egypt served as the official HQ for the external leadership until after Tunisia and Morocco had achieved independence and the rebel leaders were able to establish HQs in those two countries. In the interconnected post-war Arab world around the Middle East and North Africa, the French were heavily outnumbered in their efforts to cling to their glorious past. Before he had even nationalised the Suez Canal, Nasser had given the French more than a few reasons to feel resentful towards him, and Molay's government certainly wouldn't have mourned the fall of such an ambitious and interfering Arab statesman, so more the better if they had the opportunity to play a significant role in Nasser's downfall. Egypt continued to serve as both a channel and a supplier of military equipment, and as a training ground for rebel soldiers well into the late 1950s. Throughout the Algerian conflict, other Arab states also provided financial aid. Beginning in 1958, this took the form of an annual subsidy openly authorised by the Arab League. When the rebels set up their Algerian state in September 1958, all of the Arab League states granted recognition immediately and exchanged diplomatic representatives as soon as was possible. In 1960 and 61, the Arab League's members adopted resolutions recommending that the Arab states send volunteers to join the rebel forces in Algeria if requested by the Frontier Liberation Nationale, the name given to the Algerian Independence Organisation. It must have seemed as though every two-bit post-colonial authoritarian junta was out to inflict misery upon her, but such was the legacy and memory of bitterness among the developing Third World that France proved wholly unable to escape. It is hard to say whether resentment towards Egypt motivated Guy Mollet to personally ensure that the French cooperated with the British to intervene in Suez alongside Israel. 
when we come to that point in the story, we'll see that plenty of other outstanding factors can help explain this act as well. The horror of the Algerian situation, called a harvest of hatred by one historian, may seem detached from events in Egypt, but as our limited probe into Arab and North African collusion shows, these peoples were far more inclined to cooperate and connect with one another than the French had anticipated. Guy Mollet sent 300,000 soldiers to Algeria and implemented martial law in the entire country only a few weeks after his stay, but this only hardened everyone's stance and it failed to crush the Algerian rebels, which was Mollet's goal after all. French military power, in a story similar to Indochina, simply was not capable of crushing this insurgency. It would take several years for the French to actually learn anything from this experience, and during that time the Algerian and French people, once considered so joined at the hip, became irreconcilable. Those that may have believed Indochina to be a once-off, unfortunate series of circumstances would have to see Algeria and the relinquishing of other North African territories as a clear sign that the French Empire was no longer guaranteed. Even as they accepted millions from the United States and were permitted to withdraw their forces from NATO to fight the Algerians, the French proved ultimately unable to defeat the Algerians. Paris filed for bankruptcy, and not merely the incumbent French government, but the very Republic of France itself collapsed in 1958. It seemed that only the person of de Gaulle and a fresh new start in the Fifth Republic would save what little French dignity and influence remained in the world. The French realised too late, of course, that time had passed them and their empire by, and that French fortunes could be made with far less effort and far greater returns not in the crumbling vestiges of their old empires, but in the pursuit of unity, security and cooperation closer to home in Europe, and more surprisingly, perhaps, with Germany. The pill was especially bitter and difficult to swallow, but other flavours to this pill certainly existed. Across the channel, above all, the old frenemy of the French were facing struggles and identity crises of their own. Next time, history friends and patrons will resume our coverage of this eventful year in episode 2 by looking at the British and examining their long and storied relationship with the Egyptians and, of course, that critical waterway known as the Suez Canal. Until then, though, history friends, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to episode 2.1 of 1956. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this window into this very interesting and very spectacular series. A huge thanks to all of you who are supporting us on Patreon. I hope to see you there sometime soon, perhaps by following the links below or by going to patreon.com forward slash brendiplomacyfells. Otherwise, you're the best, and I hope to see you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.